Hello, my name is Hassan Sorrells, and this is the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast, episode number 45, with our book today, Mrs. Dalloway, by Virginia Woolf. From Modern Fiction by Virginia Woolf, a brief selection, we're going to start off this episode of the podcast for this new year uh, with a selection uh, from an essay by Virginia Woolf um, ahead of us reading from our book today, Mrs. Dalloway, from Modern Fiction by, again, Virginia Woolf. Our quarrel then is not with the classics, and if we speak of quarreling with Mr. Wells, Mr. Bennett, and Mr. Galsworthy, it is partly that by the mere fact of their existence in the flesh, their work has a living, breathing, everyday imperfection, which bids us to take what liberties with it we choose. But it is also true that while we thank them for a thousand gifts, we reserve our unconditional gratitude for Mr. Hardy, for Mr. Conrad, and in a much lesser degree for Mr. Hudson of the Purple Land, Green Mansions, and Far Away and Long Ago. Mr. Wells, Mr. Bennett, and Mr. Galsworthy have excited so many hopes and disappointed them so persistently that our gratitude largely takes the form of thanking them for having shown us what they might have done but have not done, what we certainly could not do but as certainly perhaps do not wish to do. No single phrase will sum up the charge or grievance which we have to bring against a mass of work so large in its volume and embodying so many qualities, both admirable and the reverse. If we tried to formulate our meaning in one word, we should say that these three writers are materialists. It is because they are concerned not with the spirit, but with the body that they have disappointed us and left us with the feeling that the sooner English fiction turns its back upon them as politely as may be, and marches, if only into the desert, the better for its soul. Naturally, no single word reaches the center of three separate targets. In the case of Mr. Wells, it falls notably wide of the mark, and yet, even with him, it indicates to our thinking the fatal alloy in his genius, the great clod of clay that has got itself mixed up with the purity of his inspiration. But Mr. Bennett is perhaps the worst culprit of the three, inasmuch as he is by far the best workman. He can make a book so well-constructed and solid in its craftsmanship that it is difficult for the most exacting of critics to see through what chink or crevice decay can creep in. There is not so much as a draught between the frames of the windows or a crack in the boards, and yet, if life should refuse to live there, that is a risk which this creator of the old wives' tales, George Cannon, Edwin Clayhanger, and hosts of other figures may well claim to have surmounted. His characters live abundantly, even unexpectedly, but it remains to ask how do they live and what do they live for. More and more they seem to us, deserting even the well-built villa in the five towns, to spend their time in some softly padded first-class railway carriage, pressing bells and buttons innumerable. And the destiny to which they travel so luxuriously becomes more and more unquestionably an eternity of bliss spent in the very best hotel in Brighton. 
It can scarcely be said of Mr. Wells that he is a materialist in the sense that he takes too much delight in the solidity of his fabric. His mind is too generous in its sympathies to allow him to spend much time in making things shipshape and substantial. He is a materialist from sheer goodness of heart, taking upon his shoulders the work that ought to have been discharged by government officials, and in the plethora of his ideas and facts, scarcely having leisure to realize or forgetting to think important, the crudity and coarseness of his human beings. Yet what more damaging criticism can there be, both of his earth and of his beings, than that they are to be inhabited here and hereafter by his Jones and his Peters? Does not the inferiority of their natures tarnish whatever institutions and ideals may be provided for them by the generosity of their creator? Nor profoundly, though we respect the integrity and humanity of Mr. Galsworthy, shall we find what we seek in his pages. If we fasten then one label on all these books, on which is one word materialists, we mean by it that they write of unimportant things, that they spend immense skill and immense industry in making the trivial and the transitory appear true and the enduring. We have to admit that we are exacting and further that we find it difficult to justify our discontent by explaining what it is that we exact. We frame our question differently at different times, but it reappears most persistently as we drop the finished novel on the crest of a sigh. Is it worthwhile? What is the point of it all? Can it be that owing to one of those little deviations which the human spirit seems to make from time to time, Mr. Bennett has come down with his magnificent apparatus for catching life just an inch or two on the wrong side. Life escapes, and perhaps without life nothing else is worthwhile. It is a confession of vagueness to have to make use of such a figure as this, but we scarcely better the matter by speaking, as critics are prone to do, of reality. Admitting the vagueness which afflicts all criticism of novels, let us hazard the opinion that, for us, at this moment, the form of fiction most in vogue most more often misses than secures the thing we seek. Whether we call it life or spirit, truth or reality, this, the essential thing, has moved off or on and refuses to be contained any longer in such ill-fitting vestments as we provide. Nevertheless, we go on perseveringly, conscientiously, constructing our two and thirty chapters after a design which more and more ceases to resemble the vision in our minds. The Literary Life of Virginia Wolf. Born Adeline Virginia Stephen on January 25th, 1882, and died on March 28th, 1942, of suicide, our author today, Virginia Wolf, stands as the first entry, um, and her work stands as the first entry into the canon of modernist literature. And more specifically, even than that, modern feminist literature. Now, 
Many times Virginia Woolf is read or is positioned as the anti-Jane Austen, and we're even going to address that positioning today. Uh, but I prefer to think of her um, in reading Mrs. Dalloway, her most popular uh, novel that she published uh, many years before her death. And we'll talk a little bit about the publication and we'll talk a little bit about the nature of the book. Um, I prefer to think of her, again, more as a modernist author and more as the first author who really began to document, who really began to engage with uh, luxury ideas, uh, the decline of the valuation of work overall in the West, and of course, the modern, she's the first person, the first author to really deal with, to really address, to really put down on paper this thing that we take uh, for granted um, as readers and as leaders in the, uh, in the 21st century. This idea that trauma can be used to generate attention. This is, of course, not to say that trauma isn't real and the impacts of trauma aren't real. And Virginia Woolf, if you look at her life, had her own fair share of that. She was one of seven children from a blended family of middle-class and upper-class aristocrats. She was homeschooled in the classics and in Victorian literature. Her mother uh, was married to a father 15 years older than her, and uh, this, uh, this marriage was one of attention-seeking. It was one of trauma. Uh, it was one of interpolarities and multipolarities and varied family dynamics. Eventually, Virginia Woolf attended the ladies' department of King's College in London, where she studied both classics and history. Over the course of many, many years, um, it was determined that she went through bouts of depression. She suffered bouts of depression, and she would swing back and forth between being depressive and being manic. Uh, a lot of uh, activity, um, in particular literary activity, followed by bouts of depression, what we would call today bipolar disorder. Now, during the course of Virginia Woolf's life, she was attached to many authors and writers and scientists and thinkers, um, individuals such as John Maynard Keynes, E.M. Forster, Roger Fry, and Mary McCarthy, uh, mostly through her husband, Leonard Woolf, but also through her involvement as part of the Bloomsbury Group. Now, this is a group of folks who, in the early 20th century, were seeking to discover a new voice in uh, literature and in economics and in poetry and in art. Uh, as individuals who came from wealth, they were able to spend a lot of time doing this. And uh, while they did produce many things of value, um, more of the Bloomsbury Group was really focused on this idea of luxury ideas, or as Rob Henderson would say, luxury beliefs. Notoriously, Virginia Woolf, even though she was married to Leonard Woolf, um, was engaged in a lesbian relationship with a woman named Vita Sackville West, who was also married at the time. 
and who published her books, this was Vita Sackville West published her books, uh, through a, a press that Leonard Wolf started called Hogarth Press. And this was how Virginia, many of Virginia Woolf's uh, works were published. In 1925, she published Mrs. Dalloway, a tale of a woman named Clarissa who goes through um, one day. And this is a one day in the life of Mrs. Dalloway. This is one day in the life of a wealthy woman walking through London and experiencing, well, experiencing trauma in a post-World War II London that is trying to put itself back together. Back to Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. We'll be reading directly today from the Penguin Classics Deluxe Edition of Mrs. Dalloway. Now, this edition of Mrs. Dalloway uh, features a couple of different things. So uh, we've got obviously got our introduction here and a foreword. Um, now, the, the foreword is written by... Um, a uh, uh, an author named Jenny Ophiel, and uh, I know a little. I know little about uh, Mrs. Ophiel, other than to say uh, she wrote the the introduction to this. I believe she's a feminist critic, if I remember correctly. Again, I know very little about her. Um, and then the introduction here uh, to the Penguin Classics edition of Mrs. Dalloway is written by Elaine Showalter, um, and also features notes um, and a map of London during the time of Clarissa Dalloway. So reading directly from Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. It was at Borton that summer, early in the 90s, when he was so passionately in love with Clarissa. There were a great many people there, laughing and talking, sitting around a table, and uh, that was after tea, and the room was bathed in yellow light and full of cigarette smoke. They were talking about a man who had married his housemaid, one of the neighboring squires. He had forgotten his name. He had married his housemaid, and she had been brought to Borton to call. An awful visit it had been. She was absurdly overdressed, quote-unquote, like a cockatoo, Clarissa had said, imitating her, and she never stopped talking. On and on she went, and on and on. Clarissa imitated her. Then somebody said Sally Seaton it was. Did it make any real difference to one's feelings to know that before they married, she had a baby girl? In those days, in mixed company, it was a bold thing to say. He could see Clarissa now turning bright pink, somehow contracting and saying, oh, I shall never be able to speak to her again. Whereupon the whole party sitting around the tea table seemed to wobble. It was very uncomfortable. He hadn't blamed her for minding the fact, since in those days a girl brought up as she was knew nothing, but it was her manner that annoyed him. Timid, hard, arrogant, prudish, the death of the soul. He had said that instinctively, ticketing the moment, as he used to do. The death of her soul. Everyone wobbled, everyone seemed to bow as she spoke, and then to stand up different. He could see Sally Seaton, like a child who has been in mischief, leaning forward, rather flushed, wanting to talk, but afraid. And Clarissa did frighten people. She was Clarissa's greatest friend, always about the place, an attractive creature, handsome, dark, with a reputation in those days of great daring. 
And he used to give her cigars, which she smoked in her bedroom. And she had either been engaged to somebody or quarreled with her family and old Perry, disliked them both equally, which was a great bond. Then Clarissa, still with an air of being offended with them all, got up, made some excuse, and went off alone. As she opened the door, in came the great shaggy dog, which ran after sheep. She flung herself upon him, went into raptures. It was as if, she said to Peter, it was all aimed at him. He knew. I know you thought me absurd about that woman just now, but see how extraordinarily sympathetic I am? See how I love my Rob? There had always been this queer power of communicating without words. She knew directly he criticized her. Then she would do something quite obvious to defend herself, like this fuss with the dog. But it never took him in. He always saw through Clarissa. Not that she said anything, of course. She just sat there looking glum. It was that way their quarrels often began. She shut the door. And once he became extremely depressed. It all seems useless. Going on about being in love, going on quarreling, going on making it up. And he wandered off alone among outhouses, stables, looking at the horses. The place was kind of a humble one. The Perrys were never very well off, but there were always grooms and stable boys about. Clarissa loved riding. And an old coachman, what was his name? An old nurse, old Moody, old Goody, some such name they called her, whom one was taken to visit Allah in a little room with lots of photographs, lots of bird cages. It was an awful evening. He grew more and more gloomy, not only about that, about everything. He couldn't see her, couldn't explain to her, couldn't have, couldn't have it out. There were always people about. She'd go on as if nothing had happened. That was the devilish part of her, this coldness, this woodenness, something very profound in her, which he felt, which he had felt again this morning, talking to her, an impenetrability. Yet heaven knows he loved her. She had some queer power of fiddling on one's nerves, turning one's nerves to fiddle strings, yes. He had gone to dinner rather late from some idiotic idea of making himself felt, and had sat down by old Ms. Perry, Aunt Helena, Mr. Perry's sister, who was supposed to preside. There she sat in her white cashmere shawl with her head against the window, a formidable old lady but kind to him, for he had found her some rare flower, and she was a great botanist, marching off in thick boots with a black tin collecting box slung between her shoulders. The Virus of Luxury Ideas There's an idea that has come about in the beginning of the 21st century, what with the rise of influencers, uh, social media, and the atomization of celebrity. It is an idea that the elites and the influencers have a lot more power than what we give them credit for. And this power this power comes from the ideas that they carry. Now, the ideas that people carry, the ideas that the elites carry, uh, the beliefs that they carry, tend to be fine. And in that example that came from Mrs. Dalloway, where people were shocked that a man had had a child with a woman out of wedlock, a man below his class, a man below his status, but but they were not shocked that that the man 
had had the affair with the woman below his status. They were instead shocked that, and again, I go back to the book, did it make any real difference to one's feelings to know that before they'd married, she'd had a baby? Um, this is that idea of a luxury belief, the idea that sex without marriage is meaningless. And we see this reflected in uh, Virginia Woolf's own life. I mean, with the Bloomsbury Group, there was a lot of uh, open sexual activity and open marriage, uh, particularly pushed by the men in the group, uh, most notoriously Leonard Woolf. And of course, um, <clears throat> Virginia Woolf responded to this by having a relationship with Vita Sackville West. This is an example of luxury beliefs. Luxury beliefs are ideas that cost the elites nothing. They cost them nothing sexually, they cost them nothing morally, they cost them nothing financially. But when the middle class and the poor adopt these luxury beliefs as a way to live, well, then they become very problematic. As the marketer and author and speaker Seth Godin has said in the past, in any system, the people at the top get hurt last. By the way, I'm not the first person to come up with this idea of luxury beliefs or luxury ideas. Uh, this has been made famous by a guy named Rob Henderson. I would look up, if I were you, I would look up some of his writing and some of his work. Um, but Mrs. Dalloway stands as a, as a petri dish, as a model for those luxury beliefs. By the way, in the early 20th century, luxury beliefs um, really focused around eugenics, right? They focused around getting rid of undesirables. They focused around sexual libertinism, as I've already mentioned, and they focused around Marxist and socialist rhetoric, particularly in England. But not revolutionary action. Nothing in Virginia Woolf's life or in her writing indicates a desire for revolutionary action. This is the, the, the beliefs of the petite bourgeois, as Lenin, not the Beatle, might say. Now, nothing in Wolf's background, and she, was, she came from an elite, aristocratic intellectual background. Uh, she went to King's College, for God's sakes, and studied the classics, would have stopped her from documenting those types of beliefs. She wrote from what she knew, as any good author would. And so Mrs. Dalloway fundamentally stands for leaders as the beginning of reportage, gussied up as art, from the front lines of the death of meaning in the West, which, of course, we will see come to total fruition in the writings of Joan Didion and many other authors in the back half of the 20th century. One of the interesting things that you may want to note about Virginia Woolf is that she was not really valued as an author in her time. She wasn't thought of as being an intellectual heavyweight. And Mrs. Dalloway, the story of Clarissa Dalloway, basically wandering through London over the course of a day, while modeled after James Joyce's Ulysses, had none of the uh, intellectual or architectural weight that was given to that work. And tragically, Virginia Woolf uh, began, her writing really began the 
the decline in the valuation of the work of female authors, which continued throughout the 20th century in fits and starts. Uh, authors like uh, Pearl Buck, uh, Jane Austen, which, who came before her, but authors like Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, those were, those were the, the Enlightenment writers, um, began to be devalued. But also, during the course of the 20th century, uh, even though Pearl Buck won a Nobel Prize for her work in The Good Earth, uh, which we will read later on uh, this year on the podcast, uh, even she was on the decline culturally. And by the middle of the 20th century, and by the end of the 20th century, was no longer generating as nearly as much of attention as she was critically at the beginning of the 20th century. And I would assert that Virginia Woolf's work really began this decline. <clears throat> this is the penalty for holding luxury beliefs or for promulgating luxury ideas through your work. Eventually, the public can no longer be shocked and moves on. Back to Mrs. Dalloway, the Penguin Classics Edition by Virginia Woolf, forward by Jenny O'Phil. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. For Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmayer's men were coming, and then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, one morning, fresh as if, it, as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge, for so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at Borton into the open air. How fresh, how calm, stiller than this, of course, the air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of 18, as she then was, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen, looking at the flowers, at the trees, with the smoke winding off of them, and the rooks rising, falling, standing and looking, until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables, was that it? I prefer men to cauliflowers, was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone out on to the terrace, Peter Walsh. He may be back from India one of these days, June or July, she forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings, one remembered, his eyes, his pocket knife, his smile, his grumpiness, and, when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was, a few sayings like this about cabbages. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dertnall's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster. A touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green, light, vivacious, though she was over fifty and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross very upright. For having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over twenty. One feels even in the midst of the traffic or waking at night, Clarissa was positive, a particular hush or solemnity. An indescribable pause, a suspense, but that might be her heart affected, they say, by influenza, before Big Ben strikes. There, out it boomed, first a warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Such fools we are, she thought, crossing Victoria Street, for heaven only knows why one loves it so, how one sees it so, making it up, building it round one, tumbling it, creating it every moment afresh, but 
the various frumps, the most dejected of miseries sitting on doorsteps drink their downfall, do the same, can't be dealt with. She felt positive by acts of parliament for that very reason. They love life. In people's eyes, in the swing, tramp, and trudge, in the bellow and the uproar of the carriages, motor cars, omnibuses, vans, sandwichmen, shuffling and swinging, brass bands, barrel organs, in the triumph and the jingle and the strange high singing of some aeroplane overhead was what she loved. Life, London, this moment of June. For it was the middle of June. The war was over, except for someone like Miss Foxtrot at the embassy, Foxcroft at the embassy last night eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed and now the old manor house must go to a cousin or Lady Bexborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, with a telegram in her hand. John, her favorite, killed, but it was over, thank heaven, over. It was June. The king and queen were at the palace and everywhere, though it was still so early, there was a beating, a stirring of galloping ponies, tapping of cricket bats, lords, ascot, ranelaw, and all the rest of it, wrapped in the soft mesh of the gray-blue morning air, which, as the day wore on, would unwind them and set down on their lawns and pitches the bouncing ponies whose forefeet just struck the ground, and up they sprung, the whirling young men and laughing girls in their transparent muslins, who even now, after dancing all night, were taking their absurdly woolly dolls for dogs for a run. And even now, at this hour, discreet old dowagers were shouting out in their motor cars on errands of mystery, and the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their paste and diamonds, their lovely old sea green brooches in 18th century scentings to tempt Americans. But one must economize, not buy things rashly for Elizabeth. And she, too, loving it as she did with an absurd and faithful passion, being part of it since her people were courtiers once in the time of the Georges, she, too, was going that very night to kindle and illuminate to give her party. But how strange. On entering the park, the silence, the mists, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks, the pouched birds waddling, and who should be coming along with his back against the government buildings most appropriately, carrying a dispatch box stamped with the royal arms, who but Hugh Whitebread, her old friend Hugh, the admirable Hugh. Good morning to you, Clarissa, said Hugh rather extravagantly, for they had known each other as children. Where are you off to? I love walking in London, said Mrs. Dallery. Really, it's better than walking in the country. They had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people came to see pictures, go to the opera, take their daughters out. The Whitbreads came to see doctors. Times without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread in a nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again? Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, imitating by a kind of pout or swell of his very well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed, always, but presumably had to be with his little job at court. That his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which as an old friend Clarissa Dalloway would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance. And felt very sisterly and oddly conscious at that same time of her hat. Not the right hat for the early morning, was it? For Hugh always made her feel as he bustled on, raising his hat rather extravagantly and assuring her that she might be a girl of 18. And of course, he was coming to her party tonight. Evelyn absolutely insisted, only a little late, that he might be after the party at the palace, to which she had to take one of Jim's boys. She always felt a little skimpy beside Hugh, schoolgirlish, but attached to him, partly from having known him always, but she did think him a good sort in his own way, though Richard was nearly driven mad by him, and as for Peter Walsh, he had never to this day forgiven her for liking him. Trauma to generate attention. Looking to generate meaning and looking to the work 
in and of itself for meaning is the beginning of the search for meaning that most modernist artists, novelists, painters, filmmakers, and poets really began at the beginning of the 20th century. However, not finding deep enough meaning there, as Nietzsche told them they wouldn't, the modernist quickly becomes, quickly transforms over the course of many years into what we now know as the postmodernist. And the postmodernist throws out the entire text itself, claiming foolishly that no texts have any meaning at all. Wolf and her Bloomsbury group, as we heard in that last clip, were the bridge linking the worst intellectual excesses of the late 19th and early 20th century to the coming intellectual moribundness of the late 20th and early 21st century by thinkers, writers, artists, intellectuals, all who positioned themselves as elite. Mrs. Dalloway can be seen as the beginning of the hollowing out of the elites, uh, most notably in the character of Peter Walsh, who we will be meeting in a little bit, but also in the fact that Clarissa's stream of consciousness uh, seems to be positioned as a replacement for competency or the very minimum, the energy to pursue competency. I mean, the first infamous line that we read in our selection is the infamous line that opens Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. In a postmodern feminist critique, or through a postmodern feminist critique lens, this line is read as a line of empowerment. Mrs. Dalloway don't need no Mr. Dalloway. But if you look deeper and you poke that candy-coated shell of empowerment, you realize that there's nothing underneath. There's very little empowerment in modernist thinking. There's just grasping for meaning. Once again, Nietzsche, Darwin, and Freud, while they promised us that we could go inside and evolve a new man, Eventually, their promises turned out to be hollow, and by 1925, most intellectuals knew their promises were hollow. And yet, there were still enough middle-class folks and lower-class folks who were experiencing real trauma in real time in their real lives and who were really overcoming it in solid, competent ways that they could boister, they could push up. They could buoy these attention-seeking elites. Now, Mrs. Dalloway herself in the book eventually turns on her former lover, and of course she marries the appropriate man, because even though she may be traumatized by going and picking up the flowers herself. She may be traumatized by going and buying the flowers herself. Even though that may be happening, she is still doing the thing herself. 
and she still has a standard to uphold because after all there are still guardrails in society there are still standards there are still right and wrong a concept that would be totally abandoned by the very same elites that would clap for her picking up the flowers and buying them herself on Twitter many, many years later. Back to the book, back to Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. We're going to take a look at the introduction of a particularly penultimate character here, Peter Walsh. Quiet descended on her, calm, content as her needle, drawing the silk smoothly to its gentle paws, collected the green folds together and attached them very lightly to the belt. So on a summer's day, waves collect, overbalance, and fall, collect and fall, and the whole world seems to be saying, that is all more and more ponderously until even the heart and the body which lies in the sun on the beach says too that is all fear no more says the heart fear no more says the heart committing its burden to some sea which sighs collectively for all sorrows and renews begins collects lets fall and the body alone listens to the passing bee the wave breaking the dog barking far away barking and barking heavens the front bell exclaimed clarissa staying her needle roused she listened Mrs. Dalloway will see me, said the elderly man in the hall. Oh, yes, she will see me, he repeated, putting Lucy aside very benevolently and running upstairs ever so quickly. Yes, 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 he muttered as he ran upstairs. She will see me. After five years in India, Clarissa will see me. Who can? What can? asked Mrs. Dalloway, thinking it was outrageous to be interrupted at 11 o'clock on the morning of the day she was giving a party. Hearing a step on the stairs, she heard a hand upon the door. She made to hide her dress, like a virgin, protecting chastity, respecting privacy. Now the brass knob slipped, now the door opened, and in came. For a single, she- single second, she could not remember what he was called. So surprised she was to see him, so glad, so shy, so utterly taken aback, to have Peter Walsh come to her unexpectedly in the morning. She had not read his letter. And how are you? said Peter Walsh positively trembling, taking both her hands, kissing both her hands. She's grown older, he thought, sitting down. I shan't tell her anything about it, he thought, for she's grown older. She's looking at me, he thought, a sudden embarrassment coming over him, though he had kissed her hands. Putting his hand into his pocket, he took out a large pocket knife and half opened the blade. Exactly the same, thought Clarissa, the same queer look, the same cheek check suit a little out of the straight his face is a little thinner drier perhaps he looks awfully well and just the same how heavenly it is to see you again she exclaimed he had his knife out that's so like him she thought he only reached town last night he said would have to go down to the country road at once and how is everything how is everybody richard elizabeth and what's all this he said tilting his penknife toward her green dress he's very well dressed thought clarissa yet he always criticizes me here she is mending her dress, mending her dress as usual, he thought. Here she's been sitting all the time I've been in India, <clears throat> mending her dress, playing about, going to parties, running to the house back and all that, he thought, growing more and more irritated, more and more agitated. For there's nothing in the world so bad for some women as marriage, he thought, and politics and having a conservative husband like the admirable Richard. So it is, so it is, he thought, shutting the knife with a snap. Richard's very well. Richard's at a committee, said Clarissa. 
She opened her scissors and said, did he mind her just finishing what she was doing to her dress, for they had a party that night? Which I shan't ask you to, she said. My dear Peter, she said. But it was delicious to hear her say that. My dear Peter, indeed, it was so delicious. The silver of the chair is all so delicious. Why wouldn't she ask him to her party, he asked. Now, of course, thought Clarissa, he's enchanting, perfectly enchanting. Now I remember how impossible it was ever to make up my mind, and why I did make up my mind not to marry him, she wondered, that awful summer. Ah, uh, but it's so extraordinary that you should come this morning, she cried, putting her hands one on top of another down on her dress. Do you remember, she said, how the blinds used to flap at Borton? They did, he said, and he remembered breakfasting alone very awkwardly with her father, who had died. He had not written to Clarissa, but he had never got on well with old Perry, that querulous, weak-kneed old man, Clarissa's father, Justin Perry. I often wish you'd, I'd got on better with your father, he said. But he never liked anyone who are friends, said Clarissa, and could have bitten her tongue for thus reminding Peter that he had wanted to marry her. Of course I did, thought Peter. It almost broke my heart, too, he thought, and was overcome with his own grief, which rose like a moon, looked at from a terrace, ghastly, beautiful with light from the sunken day. And I was more unhappy than I've ever been since, he thought. And as if in truth he were sitting there on the terrace, he edged a little towards Clarissa, put his hand out, raised it, let it fall. There, above them, it hung that moon. She too seemed to be sitting with him on the terrace in the moonlight. Herbert has it now, she said. I'd never go there now, she said. Then, just as happens on the terrace in the moonlight, when one person begins to feel ashamed that he is already bored, and yet, as the other sits silent, very quiet, sadly looking at the moon, does not like to speak, moves his foot, clears his throat, notices some iron scroll on a table leg, stirs a leaf, but says nothing. So Peter Walsh did now. For why go back like this to the past, he thought. Why make him think of it again? Why make him suffer when she had tortured him so infernally? Why? Jane Austen factor. Admiring James Joyce and admiring his work in Ulysses was the thing that pushed Virginia Woolf to write Mrs. Dalloway. And uh, she took Joyce's approach, his stream of consciousness, in an attempt to replicate um, a way of describing and representing the reality that she saw around her. The reality of individuals still seeking to make a connection with each other and yet being unable to do so because they can't really find any meaning in it. The characters in Mrs. Dalloway, uh, most notoriously Peter Walsh, but um, there's another character in here named Septimus. Uh, you've got Richard Dalloway uh, and a whole host of others. These characters engage in thinking without the follow-up of taking action. Their intellects, their cerebral action leads to 
well, not even action itself, the thought of taking action leads to ennui that they seem to be unable to overcome. In Mrs. Dalloway, character, morals, ethics, and internal lives are revealed. Uh, Wolf did a good job of pulling away the cover of the elites, but such revelation does not lead to any new knowledge or any new wisdom, as even occurs in our day, where character, morals, ethics, and internal lives are revealed through a lot of external talking, and yet no new knowledge or deeper understanding of the human condition can be attained from the Instagram posts of your favorite social media influencer. Jeremiah, infamously, that old prophet from that hoary old book, the Bible, that we would all desperately like to get rid of but can't, Jeremiah, chapter 17, verses 9 through 10, said, and I quote, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Such is it written, and such does it manifest in reality. Virginia Woolf is the anti-Jane Austen, but not for the reasons that feminists believe she is. Uh, Woolf looked inside for meaning in action, and she looked inside the self and found nothing. Austen searched for meaning in action in the external, and she found a new way to examine reality while also saying something artistic in an artistic way that people in the future would be able to engage with. Virginia Woolf may be the ultimate anti-Jane Austen, but it is doubtful that her approach, thinking without acting, is going to take much of a hold away. It has taken much of a hold <laughs> in the lives of Western man. But perhaps our deceitful hearts are ready for a new and old paradigm shift. So how do we stay on the path with a book that seems to be as innocuous as Mrs. Dalloway? Well, if you're a leader listening to this podcast, you've been listening to us for the last year or so, you know that we read seemingly tough books or books that seem to not relate to leadership at all, and we manage to we managed to pull from them leadership insights that are actually helpful for you in your real lived life. And 2023 is a year of taking action, right? 
You can read, you can journal, you can reflect, but at a certain point, you have to move away from theory and into practice. And this is a year of moving into practice. So what are the things we can learn from Mrs. Dalloway and from the life, the literary life of Virginia Woolf that will help us move from thinking, from ennui, to competency and to strength? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to realize that in order to take action, we have to overthrow, we have to get rid of nihilism and existential dread. We have to acknowledge that these two tools, which the postmodern man uses as he strikes a pose of not caring, these cannot successfully fill the vacuum of meaning that exists in a leader's soul. Followers demand more, and they have a right to more. Take action. Do something. Don't just make a plan. Don't just stand around. When you do something, meaning begins to accrue. The other thing we can note from Mrs. Dalloway is this. Elite thinkers, whether they are in the leadership space, whether they're on your favorite podcast, <laughs> or even in your favorite book, whether they are a celebrity with a Facebook account, or a celebrity who gives an interview, these, these people, they're not bright. <laughs> I'll just say it. Some of them may have a species of intelligence or a bit of competency in the areas where they have chosen to make their practice and their bread, but that doesn't mean that leaders need to listen to them opine on areas that are outside of their expertise. And so... Leaders everywhere avoid catching, avoid acquiring the virus of luxury ideas, luxury beliefs. They look at those beliefs and they say, well, that's fine for you, but that doesn't scale up to reality. And then they abandon it in favor of something that works. Trauma and generating attention uh, look, I don't want to make this podcast too focused on the now, but I will say this. There are certain individuals in our culture who have been captured by luxury ideas. And the biggest luxury idea is that trauma is the only differentiator to generate attention. And if there is no trauma, then you're common. And if you're common, then you're not popular. And if you're not popular, who will read your tweets or like your Instagram posts? Leaders don't bleed all over the floor. They don't bleed all over other people. They don't use their personal trauma to generate attention. They don't use their personal to accomplish political ends. Finally, leaders take action. And by taking action, they develop more character. They develop deeper morals. And they develop an ethical structure, an ethical framework that becomes the soul craft that allows them to move people forward into a world that is more chaotic than ever before. They examine their deceitful hearts. They allow the Lord to search them and test their minds in the field of lived action. And well, 
that's it for me. Listen and subscribe to the Leadership Lessons from the Great Books podcast on all the major podcast players that you listen to podcasts on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and even Spotify. And please leave a five-star review if you like the show. We need those reviews to grow, and it's the easiest way to make sure that this show gets into the ears of the leaders who need to hear it. And of course, tell all your friends. If you want to get started on the leadership path, HSCT Publishing's products and services can help your team do that. Check out our training webinars, coaching services, and more at leadershiptoolbox.us. We also have a video-based subscription service, that's software as a service, that can help your team become better at the individual level. 60 modules and over 100 hours of video and written content for you at leadingkeys.com. That's leadingkeys.com. We've also got books that will help you and your team grow. Pick up a copy today of My Boss Doesn't Care, 100 Essays on Disrupting Your Workplace by Disrupting Your Boss, and subscribe to the Little Red Podcast I launched earlier this year with the same name as that Little Red Book. My most recent book is 12 Rules for Leaders, The Foundation of Intentional Leadership, co-written with contributions from Bradley Madigan. This is the book for right now that was written for leaders right now. Pick up a copy by heading over to 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. That's 12rulesleadersbook.com backslash now. You pay for shipping and you'll get a copy of my second book as well. Finally, you can get all these books in paperback, hardcover, or as ebooks on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, and any other place online you order books. Finally, HSCT Publishing is on YouTube. Like and subscribe to the video version of the Leadership Lessons for the Great Books podcast on the HSCT Publishing channel on YouTube. Just search for HSCT Publishing and hit the subscribe button. You'll get our weekly video updates, which is the video version of this podcast. And, of course, you're going to want to subscribe to my other podcast. That's right, I do do more than one. The Hayson Sorrells Presents Audio Experience, where I talk more casually with a broader range of people about all matters that matter in the world today, from arts all the way to analytics. All right, that's it for me.